Great. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you for that introduction. Well, good morning, Jubilee. I hope you're all okay. Uh, and I'm very much missing seeing you in person, um, but it, it's, it's great to be able to continue our series today in the Book of James. I'm excited. Um, and I don't know about you, but I found that I can really kind of relate to James. He seems like a very practical man. And um, I can, I'm kind of been imagining him as, as he writes to the scattered church that he can't physically be with, thinking, okay, what can I say to help them at this time? They are in the face of persecution, trials and poverty. They don't need sort of glib or vague encouragements. So he gives them meaty, practical advice which we are benefiting from all these years later. James's main aim is to help the scattered church join the dots between their faith and their actions. And so far we've seen how he challenges them that God's word must impact and change how they behave. And it's a challenge for us too, particularly at this time, our faith has got to work out in practice. It's got to go from our head to our heart and out to our hands. And in this time when the enemy is wanting to isolate and separate, it's been amazing, hasn't it, to see a kind of renewed energy amongst people to reach out to others. And I love that it's not just believers who are feeling this. I love seeing our neighbours getting their chairs out on their drives and having a chat over the fence. Or hearing stories of how in the first few weeks of lockdown, more than 750,000 people signed up to volunteer with the NHS. That was three times the government's original target. I love how Thursday night's clap for carers sees people kind of put aside their stiff British upper lip and make a whole load of noise to honour people that they've never even met before. And as believers, we can be leading the way on this. It's not a time to hide, but a time to prepare for action. A time to get ready, a time to lean into the Father and wait for the Holy Spirit to propel us out just like those first disciples in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. Jesus sent them out to be witnesses and their faith exploded into action as they put into practice all the things that he'd taught them to do. I feel like Jesus is offering us a similar invitation at this time. And James's challenge to us is what does your faith look like out in the real world? Are we ready to walk the walk as well as talk the talk? And so today we come to the end of chapter one and into chapter two, where James shows us how we treat people really matters to God. God is really interested in the way we accept and connect with other people especially those who may be different from us. So let's have a look today at what James has to say. Last week, Simon spoke about James's challenge to be hearers, receivers and doers of God's word. And at the end of chapter one, 
James concludes this section on obedience to God's word by defining what true, practical, resilient faith looks like. He says in chapter 1, verse 26, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So James is saying that those who obey God's word and do what it says have three characteristics. Number one, they control their tongues. Simon so helpfully spoke last week about being quick to hear and slow to speak. Number two, they care for the poor. James refers here to orphans and widows, which was a kind of frequent shorthand in his day to mean those who were poor because of their helpless state in society at the time. And number three, they don't allow themselves to be influenced or polluted by the world. And we heard Rob speak a few weeks ago, didn't we, about temptation as the baited hook. So after giving us these three headlines of what practical faith, or to use James's phrase, pure religion looks like, he goes on to describe an example of what it might mean in practice when we come together and encounter different types of people. He continues in chapter two, verse one. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James is clear. There is no place for favoritism or prejudice in the lives of believers. As I've been reading these verses, I keep imagining us all back at Jago House and thinking, would we do that? Can you imagine the welcome team leading some people to a nice comfy seat, maybe adding a fancy cushion, and then sending others to sit on the floor? Probably not. But I think it's important we don't miss the heart of what James is implying here. We might not discriminate outwardly in the way James is describing, but I wonder if we can sometimes do this in our heart. Who do we notice and pay attention to? And what is our reaction to people internally? If we're honest, do we give certain people a wide berth without even realizing we're doing it? Do we say hello, but feel like it wouldn't be appropriate to connect beyond that? So we wouldn't invite them over for dinner or to life group, for example. James says in verse four, that discrimination starts in our thoughts and then is outworked in how we act towards other people. 
What about in the supermarket at the moment? Are there certain people we find ourselves avoiding? In the early days of the outbreak of the coronavirus, the BBC reported stories of virus-related racism as Asian minorities and Chinese nationals became the target of discrimination and even attacks. I was reading that before schools were closed, some parents said their children were being bullied for being Chinese. The Bible is clear. We are called to accept and connect with those that may be different to us, not to favour some over others. Because how we treat people is an outworking of our faith in action. And actually, James goes on to say that those who are viewed as poor in the eyes of the world, and that might be economically, socially, culturally, they are actually richer in faith than the rich. In verse 5, James says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? you have dishonoured the poor. James declares that the poor have a special place in God's economy of salvation. They are rich in the eternal sense. And of course, there are echoes of Jesus's teaching here, aren't there? Jesus's mission on earth was unambiguously to proclaim good news to the poor. In Luke chapter 4, we read the first recorded sermon of his public life. The passage Jesus spoke on that day was from Isaiah 61. And he stands up in the synagogue and reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then after reading this passage to the congregation, Jesus preaches a confident eight-word sermon. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed. And of course, we are included in this if we recognise our desperate need of God's help. In his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But James's warning in our passage in verse 6 is that the church have actually dishonoured the poor as they show greater favour to those in their meetings who have gold rings and fine clothes. They were judging as the world does, not as God does. They have failed to see that the man in shabby clothes is in fact rich in God's eyes. And ironically, it was the rich outside the church who were the oppressors in James's day. In verse 6 and 7, he says, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? 
Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Yet James says the Christians are becoming like them when they discriminate against the poor in their own gatherings. Of course, Jesus himself is our example in all of this. He didn't just preach about how we should treat each other or about what justice means. His very life defined what that looks like in action. And we are a group of people, aren't we, who love God's presence. We're called to seek his presence in prayer and worship. But we are also called to recognise his presence in the face of the poor. Matthew 25 verse 35 says, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus is clear. Compassion for the stranger, the hungry, the sick, the prisoner, is not an optional extra for those with a strong social conscience. It is part of our life of worship. When we care for the poor, we minister to Jesus himself. I wonder if sometimes we can reduce Jesus's teaching to a purely spiritual experience. But God has been committed to a rescue plan that is revolutionary, both spiritually and socially. When Jesus forgave the sins of the paralyzed man lowered through the roof, he went on to heal him physically, restoring his place in society. Pete Gregg writes, if you're hungry, you need real bread before you will consider the heavenly variety. If you're in chains, you take the Bible verses about freedom very literally. A few weeks ago, Angela Kem encouraged us that our discipleship will look different at this time as our faith is outworked in the people around us, our neighbours, our communities, those who may look and sound different from us. If we are to be Jesus's hands and feet, we need to care about the physical needs of others, as well as the spiritual needs. We can learn so much from those who are already leading us in this. The children's storehouse team, Jared and Helen do their work with Hope at Home, Steve working with Global Care, and there are many others. What might it look like for the kingdom of God to transform both the spiritual and practical needs of your community, your street, your workplace, the town you live in? What might it look like as you put your faith into action in this area? I'll be honest, I, I don't fully know the answer to that question myself yet. But what I do know is that how we treat people really matters to God.
And I found that he is inviting me to pray that I'd see things the way he does. I recently noticed some kind of discreet antisocial behaviour going on outside our house. And to be honest, my first reaction was one of fear and intimidation. But after asking God to show me the situation from his perspective, my response changed to wanting God to break out and meet people in my immediate community. And as a result, Rich and I are talking about ways we can serve the people we live amongst. Angela challenged us that the meat is on the street. The outworking of the gospel is out there. God is saying, get ready, get your heart aligned with his now, so that in this next season, we can go with Jesus out into our streets, whatever that looks like for us. James sums up how we are to do this in verse 8. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. I really like that, the royal law of love, the law of King Jesus, to love others as yourself. So that is the check. If you were lonely, how would you want to be treated? If you were hungry, what would you need? If you walked into a meeting full of people you'd never met before, how would you want to be received? That's the royal law of love to love your neighbour as yourself without showing favouritism. You know, we can't pick and choose which bits of faith we follow. James says in verse 9 to 11 that you are a lawbreaker if you stumble at just one point. That's in verse 10. Of course, Galatians 3.13 tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us when he died on the cross for our sin. But true freedom is the freedom to obey God and do what pleases him. This is what it means to work out our faith in action. Walking the walk is about being like Jesus being moved by the things that move his heart, to stop and notice those around us, to consider how we can help those who need it, to make friends and love people well. James concludes this section with these words in verse 12. He says, speak and act, as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God has shown us such mercy and he calls us to speak and act in the same way. As we walk in the footsteps of Jesus, Mercy and compassion are an inevitable consequence. Our acts of mercy, as we reach out to those who are hurting, grieving, broken, do not go unnoticed by God. 
So as I draw to a close, I want to finish by sharing three quick practical pointers that I found helpful in this area. Firstly, spend some time with God. Close the door, get in the secret place and ask him to help you to see things the way he does. Hear what's on his heart. Ask him to fill you with his presence. And then it's from that place of being filled up that he sends us out. Secondly, start small. What practical acts of kindness could you do this week that would show grace to those in your neighbourhood? And thirdly, be available. Don't wait for people to come to you, but be ready to love, serve and show grace to those around you. I've loved hearing the encouraging stories of how many of us are already seeing our neighbours respond as we reach out to them. And I know that there'll be many other stories out there. Maybe we could encourage each other at Life Group this week by sharing some of those stories. Our job is simply to be an open door, to include people in what we're already doing, to partner with what's already happening in our neighbourhoods and places of influence. This Tuesday night, the Catalyst Facebook and YouTube channel will be sharing Alan Scott's talk from the 2016 Catalyst Festival, where he picks up on many of these themes. I'd really encourage you, if you can, to tune into that. He has some really helpful insights on all of this. Let me finish with this from Heidi Baker. The currency of love in the West is not always money, but it is always time and compassion. God is calling us to the emotionally poor and broken, to those who are hungry, to the sick and needy, to the old and the forgotten. He's sending us to the overlooked children and the fatherless, to the prisoners, the homeless, the refugees, the addicts and those in great pain. So I want to encourage you, let him fill you with his spirit and send you out to love your neighbour as yourself and find his presence in the faces of the people that he leads you to. I'd love to pray for us before I hand back to Simon and Becky. Yeah, Jesus, I thank you that you are our example in this. And I pray that you would help us to follow your royal law of love, to love our neighbour as ourselves without showing favouritism, and I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would fill us up. We would overflow with your presence as you send us out to make a difference in the lives of the people that you put us into contact with. In Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>